if you have a Bible, turn with me to Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to deal with one verse today. These are always my favorite. I love dealing with just one text. It, it makes it simple, but it makes it simple for me because I'm, I'm oftentimes bound by detail, and so it, I get a large text. It's a challenge because I'm like, oh, there's so much there. Um, but uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Before we get started, though, um, if, uh, if you would, we're, we're going to have arts and crafts time in a little while. <laughs> uh, under your seat or in, under the seat in front of you, there should be a blank piece of paper and a pencil. Um, if you'll go ahead and just grab that. If, if you don't have one, if you're missing one, get up, grab one. There's one in, under every seat. Just uh, hang on to that. Um, we'll go ahead and do that now. That way we don't create a disruption. All right, in, in good shape. Okay. This way, when your kids talk about their arts and crafts time, you can say, well, we had arts and crafts time too. <laughs> okay, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus, as he comes to the end of his, his teaching time in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father God, you have laid out in history a pattern of grace. And we're so apt to Rest on our own righteousness, rest on our own rights, rest on our own pithy loves and love and affections, and not on the grace you have shown us on the cross. Father, may your grace be magnified through your word this morning. May you affect our hearts to turn around and Love others as you have loved us. Give us a boldness, Father, that would do that in the midst of a world that turns this golden rule upside down and trashes it. Make much of yourself through your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to I make this this statement, or this is my, my thesis this morning. I want to make the argument that the foundation for loving others rightly is rooted in the gracious love of God for us, not in self-serving love. Let me say that again. The foundation for loving others rightly is rooted in the gracious love of God for us, not in self-serving love. I think that's what Jesus is saying here in this statement where he says, therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer. It, it, it may seem well, like, duh, Austin, why do you make an argument for that? But that doesn't necessarily seem to be what's, at least on the surface of, of this text. I mean, this is probably one of the most common texts that's known throughout our, our secular culture. Um, you know, do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is something that, I mean... A non-Christian would teach their children. You could take this phrase and walk into just about any secular or, or 
or, or religious institution and put this up on a wall, they probably would not have a problem with it. Just don't put Jesus quoted it, maybe. But if you put this up, they'll go, yeah, we'll, we can get behind that. We, we affirm that. The problem is, is that we don't live this way. While we'll affirm it, even the Christian church and the secular world will affirm it, we don't actually live this way, not in the sense that Jesus is meaning it here. Because the, cultural, the culture will affirm the golden rule. How many times have you heard this? Well, if we'd all just love one another, or how about this phrase, can't we all just get along? can't tell you how many times I see that on Facebook. You know, can't we all just get along? Um, or, or someone might say when they're, when they're asked about, well, what, what do you think is the answer to this or that? Or what do you think is the answer to this cultural problem? Well, I think if we just all live by the golden rule, you know, you could probably pull that out of uh, many, um, uh, um, many pe- people in pop culture uh, who have become icons, and th- that just sort of becomes the, the tagline. It's a safe saying that covers a lot of things. Um, and, and, and where Jesus says this, many folks will look at this and they'll go, see, Jesus here, he's teaching a concept that's been in place for centuries. He wasn't the first one to say this. This was, this was taught in other, in other religious cultures. He's not the first one to, to say it. And it's almost as if, here, Jesus is summing up all of the Old Testament in a man-based moral statement. And those that, that would say that would say, see, Jesus is just another religious guru. He's just, he's just another religious guy who's, who's just trying to make peace with a man-based statement. And that's not true. Now, we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to, I want to argue this from, from, from our culture for, for a moment. Not to get on any sort of a political hobby horse, but just to say, here's how this works out in our, in our culture. Because as our culture is becoming more and more secularized, as it's dissolving uh, formalized religion, the question of morality still has to be addressed. We still have to answer the question, well, what is good? What is right? And the cultural solution to that is to remove a standard of absolute truth. If, let's face it, if we all can't agree on truth, let's just get rid of truth altogether. And that results in a major tension between what society wants to happen, peace, and what actually happens, tension. What society wants to happen and what actually happens. And that's a, that's a huge, that's huge, because the secular cultural Culture is, ch- is charging, ch- they're charging forward, flying this banner of love in an attempt to establish peace when what's actually happening is division. Do you see that? That's where the culture will say, we affirm this, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But the actual working out of that is causing more division. And I want to make the argument that it's because that, because, this, because from the Christian perspective, the, the gospel centers that golden rule on something very different than what the culture centers it on. Let me give you a couple examples of this. This is where the, where the culture falls short in actually living this out. Look at the LGBTQ movement. No, no. It wants to emphasize love and acceptance, but the, majority, uh, but the, the minority group places strong demands on culture. It's as if they're saying, well, we'll accept you as long as you accept us. That love and acceptance is not clearly reciprocal. I read an article recently where a, a, a journalist was interviewing um, a, a, a person um, who, who was in this state of gender confusion. And the, the waiter came up and said, ma'am, what can I get you to, to drink? 
And, and the, the, the author wrote that he could tell she bristled at that because he, because he used the term ma'am. And she was in a state where she wasn't sure, but she bristled at that. She bristled at that. It's clear there's not a reciprocity there. Look at the story, this, this story that's come out about Trump and Stormy Daniels. I mean, here are two people, when you look at their histories, beg for grace to be spoken. Beg for grace to be spoken. One who's made a profession in, the, in an industry that exploits women, and another one who, uh, who, who has a history of belittling women. There's much grace that needs to be spoken there. Yet there's no economy of grace in that story when you, when you read it. It's a ridiculous legal battle of pride and greed. And our culture is fascinated by it. You take this story and go back about 30 years, if it were to, to happen 30 years ago, it would be drastically different. Drastically different. What about the gun rights? The war on gun rights? Everyone wants schools safe, right? Everybody wants schools safe. One side says, remove the guns. Another one says, arm the citizens. One side says, we want to be safe, so you put down your guns. The other one says, we don't trust the heart of man, so we're going to keep all of us safe by honoring our Second Amendment rights. Both taking rights and leveraging against one another. So why is the golden rule falling short? Why is it, why is it falling short here? Because our culture is putting the individual at the center is the determining factor for what is good. But isn't that what the golden rule says? I mean, look at it. What, is he, what does Jesus say? He says, treat people the same way that you want to be treated. Aren't you at the center of that? Aren't, aren't, you, aren't you at the center of that determining factor? On the surface, it would seem that the culture kind of gets that. But is that what Jesus is actually saying here? And I'll argue that it's not. What's different about what Jesus is saying Jesus says in the positive what previously had been said in the, in the negative. When you look at what other religious leaders in this time and before had said about this golden rule, it's, it's been in the negative. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to yourself. Jesus puts it in the positive. He says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Let me, get, let me put it this way. Do not do to others what you don't want done to yourself. That's a statement that's refraining from action. It creates boundaries f- for our behavior towards others. It sets a limit. Here's as far as you can go. You cross this and you're off the reservation. But do unto others what you want done to yourself. It's a statement of limitless action. Do you see that? It's a statement of limitless action. The negative sets walls. The positive has no walls and says you march forward in this way, in this manner, in this manner. Think of, and we won't turn here, but you might look at it later. Review the story that Jesus, the, that Jesus says, it's like, it's not a story, it's a parable. The parable in, Ma- in Matthew 25 when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And he says, in the end time, the, the sheep will be separated and the goats will be shepherd, separated. The sheep into the joy of, of my father and the goats into eternal damnation. And what's the standard? What's the standard? Because both groups go, why are we here? Why, why are we here? And the goats are saying, why are we in hell? And Jesus says, because when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. 
We didn't have a roof over my head. When he gives these statements based off of what they did not do. If the negative statement of the golden rule was the standard, the goats would have been acquitted. They would have been acquitted of it. But it's the positive statement that Jesus says, you didn't do this. It's not that they did not do something. They didn't do this. James Boyce says this well. He says, in the negative form, the rule, the golden rule, is a legal principle. And the law always has self as its center. C.S. Lewis gives a wonderful example of this. He, and he talks about paying taxes. He says, an honest man may pay his taxes, but hopes there's enough left over for him to live on. You see, he'll obey the law, right? But has at its center, at the center of his motivation, his own self-centeredness. He may refrain from prejudiced acts against another person at work simply to avoid conflict or just simply to get the job done. Man may keep the law as long as he profits from it. And that's fundamentally different from what Jesus is talking about here. Fundamentally different. And that's a pivot upon which everything turns. Everything turns. You know, look, and when you look at this, look at, our, look at our culture. When you look at our culture, because what happens is when the self becomes the center of those determining factors, we begin to take and we leverage our rights into the cracks of other people and tear them apart. Do you know that, that America is touted as the most, yeah, I forget the term, um, we have the most lawsuits, there's a term for it, but we have the most lawsuits, more than really any other country in, in the world. Um, when you get into, if you're involved in corporate America and you ever sit down with the, you know, with the big wigs, uh, they ever come into town, you know, what is oftentimes the thing that's talked about? Lawsuits. No, let's guard against lawsuits. There's a genuine fear of that. And it's, it's evidence that self is at the, uh, is at the center of our, of our cultural moral compass. <clears throat> Leveraging rights against one another as opposed to grace. That's what I want to make the argument for is that at the center of the golden rule is grace. I want to make three arguments for this. I think more could be made, but for time purposes, three arguments. One, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets through selfless love. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets through selfless love. When we were early on in our, in our series, um, we, uh, we were looking at Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17, Jesus, when he, when he begins to talk about the law, and he says, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Here's the first bookend to this teaching. Okay, Everything we've looked at so far has dealt very much with Old Testament law, but Jesus is, is teaching it from a different perspective. And I won't go in, into that, but that's something we've been sort of, that's been an undermining, you know, or, or under, uh, a girder basically underneath everything we've been preaching through so far. But Jesus at this bookend, when he begins to talk about this, he says, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. Now here's the other bookend, 7.12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. For this is the law and the prophets. Romans 13, 8 through 10, 
Paul makes the argument, and he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. What do we have right here? We have a description of what love is. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Christ came, and he fulfilled the law. But, God, but Jesus demonstrates more than just a pure human love. And this is, I think, this is where things get really big and really important. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 give you some context. So here, we'll look at uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 13. Here, Paul, he, he brackets both ends of, uh, of this section with Paul's love for, their, for the Philippians and their love for him. That's what's at the beginning. That's what's at the end. And in, and in the middle here, Paul talks about Jesus. Paul says that, He's suffering for the gospel. This is what Paul is going through. He's suffering for the gospels. And the Philippians are concerned for him. They have a genuine concern for Paul's well-beings. And Paul says, it's better. It's better that I suffer, that I exalt Jesus, that Jesus be exalted. And he says, here is Jesus' example of love. So starting 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now stop right there. Paul's saying, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. He's just made some, some, some very powerful statements for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we're going to look a little bit here, here in a little bit about Paul's ministry itself. But he's saying, consider one another more important than yourselves because this was the attitude of Jesus. Now here he's going to make a big argument for why that's the case. Verse 6. Speaking of Christ, he said, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what, what's, what's Paul's point? He said, look, Jesus, who is the divine Son of God, which, by the way, if you're talking to somebody who maybe is a Jehovah's Witness or is a, is a, is a Mormon, this text, this argument makes no sense if Jesus is not the divine Son of God. The, 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 the strength of the argument is pulled out from underneath it. But Jesus is saying, if, Paul is saying, as Jesus was the Son of God and had the rights all of these divine rights, and yet he, in his love, set those things aside, clothed himself in humanity, took on human flesh, 
and was obedient to the Father to the point of death. He says, this is the love that Christ has showed us. How is it that we should consider one another more important than ourselves? It's because Christ demonstrated this for us. Jesus said to the disciples, he says, greater love has no man than this. Than what? That he laid down his life for his friends. Right? But Paul says in Romans, he says, now one will surely die for a righteous man. For a good man, someone might dare even to die. Right? Because they're worth our life. They're, they're worth that. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while wow, we were sinners. While well, we were sinners, that's not like while we deserved a slap on a hand, we were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. We were at the polar end of the spectrum. That should enamor us. That's grace. That is grace right there. Jamie read from 1 John 4, uh, 9 and 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. There's a good $5 word, or as my five-year-old says, a good teenager word. Um, and, and, and John says, brothers, if, if God's loved us this way, we ought to love others in the same way. We ought to love others in the same way. This is God's standard. That Christ, who had all the rights, had everything to leverage against us, loved us and set it aside and said, I'm going to bear your punishment. I'm going to bear your punishment. I want to do an example of this. If that paper I referenced earlier, take that paper out with your pencil, with your pen. And I want you in the middle of that paper, I just want you to draw a straight line down the middle of the paper. I don't, doesn't care. Yeah, just down the middle, draw, draw a straight line. Okay. Everybody got their line drawn? All right, now I want you to Everybody draw a line? This doesn't work if you don't draw the line. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, I want you to compare your line with somebody near you. Come on. Compare your lines. There you go. Nice. Yeah, okay. All right. Keep, keep going. All right. Who thinks they have the straightest line? <laughs> Anybody? Okay. Okay. That's, that's pretty good. That's you didn't draw it. You're disqualified. Go sit outside. <laughs> All right. Okay. Now, here, I want, you to, I want you to take and fold your piece of paper over and use the straight edge of your line to compare how straight your line is. Fold, fold your paper over and compare how, how straight. Use the straight edge of your line and align it with your line. Yeah, no, take, take the straight edge, move it up against your line. How does it look? <laughs> Evan, can I see your? Can I see yours real quick. All right, straight edges of the paper. Use that. Like yeah, there you there you go. Like like that. You see? Okay. The straight edge of your paper represents a genuine straight line. It's cut by machine. Okay. So use that. All right. How'd you do? It's not straight, is it? Okay, somebody here is going to be a professional artist, and this is just going to pull the rug out from under my example. So. All right, here's, here's the point. 
Here's what we do. When we, when we look at this golden rule, we look out amongst other people and we go, well, here's what I deserve. Here's, here's, my, here's my straight line. But God holds, holds the life and death and burial and resurrection of Christ, the rights of Christ, which is His straight edge, up against our life to show us how crooked we are, to show us our need for grace. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel is at the center of the golden rule. So Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, first book into the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, through selfless love for us. That's the second bookend. That's the gospel. Second argument, grace is at the center of the golden rule. Look at Paul's example of love for the Thessalonians. Flip over Thessalonians 2. First, first Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 2. Sorry, this is the one that's 2, 1 through 13. The other one was 2, 1 through 8. Makes it easy to remember. So here Paul... Paul writes this letter and he's thanking God for the gift of faith, faith that's among the, Thessalon, the Thessalonians. And it's a gift that came by the sovereign act of the Father through the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. You read the first five verses of, uh, of, the, of the opening of his letter and that's what you get out of it. That's, that's one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter. And that, that power of the gospel um, the, or, or the change that was affected in the Thessalonians through the gospel caused them to imitate Paul and his companions in their life, their message, and in their conduct. Paul writes and he says in, in chapter 1 verse 6, he says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And then Paul is getting ready to go on, and he's going to make a series of, uh, of arguments for the authenticity of this change in them. And one of, the, one of the arguments that he makes is from his own ministry, from his own ministry among them. So look at, look at uh, chapter 2. We'll dive in right here. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation did not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, or with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as the apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as, nursing, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also, also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So notice this. What is Paul saying? 
Paul's saying, look, when we came to you with the gospel, we didn't come deceitfully. We didn't come with greed. We weren't looking to get something for, our, for ourselves. So we set aside any rights that we had, even as apostles, ordained by God for this ministry, we set aside any of those rights with gospel-centered love. Do you see that? He said that because you become very dear to us. Keep in mind, in, 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 uh, in verse 9 in chapter 1, Paul, Paul states that these were pagan, pagan idol-worshiping wor- or, or idol pagans. They had nothing in common with, with Paul. They had nothing in common with Paul. Yet he preached the gospel boldly amongst much opposition. There was much opposition there because he loved the people. Because he loved the people. This was, this was the polar opposite of the story of Jonah, isn't it? Paul knew the grace God had showed him, and it moved him to love others with that same type of love. So he removed any possible stumbling block that would make it seem like he's serving his own self-interest. He's serving his own selfish desires, even his own needs. Paul had no reason to be in Thessalonica or even stay there unless he really, really, genuinely loved the people that were there. And he did. And it was evidenced by a selfless love for them. And the result of that was that the gospel came in power, resulted in their genuine faith. And that's not a faith that was just of words. It was a faith that was evidenced by their reciprocating that same type of love. Look at verse 13. Well, we'll, we'll continue on. I think I stopped in, uh, at verse 9. It says, For you were called, brethren, our labor and hardship, how, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel of God. You are witness, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and employing each one of you as a father would his own children. So that, that's important, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, how does it perform its work? Paul says in verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did for, from the Jews. So what's the effect of, genu- of the genuine word of God? One of those things is the gracious love, is, is gracious love towards others. I think that's where Paul says again in verse 6 of chapter 1, you became imitators of us, as of the Lord Jesus, having received the word in much tribulation with joy in the Holy Spirit. Grace was at the, was at the center of Paul's ministry. Grace was at the center of his loving others as Christ had loved him. And the effect of the gospel on the, on the Thessalonians was that they turned around and they loved others in that same way. One more. One more. Look over at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. 
I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5. I have that down. Paul here is he finishes his letter to the Ephesians and he's giving practical encouragement uh, for their life and conduct amongst one, uh, amongst one another. Zeroes in on the family. Zeroes in on the relationship between husbands and wives. And he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. So Paul uses the love of Christ for the church to, to, uh, to, to give the grounding for how husbands love their wives. But he goes on further to that. And what he says next is very parallel to what Jesus says uh, at, as his book ended to the teaching section on the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 28, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who, loves his own, who, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So Paul says, Christ's selfless love for the church, that's the standard for your marriage. That's the standard for your relationship with your, with your wife, husband, And what Paul charges here to husbands is the positive derivative of the golden rule. How does this work out in our marriages? Paul says, I'll show you. This is what it looks like. Because it's, it's a little easier to love your body when you're, when you're a single person, right? Because you're at the center of those decisions. You decide, well, I want to I tone up my muscles, so I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to eat certain foods. Maybe, maybe I, I want to be more knowledgeable about this particular hobby or this whatever, and so I'm going to read certain books. You even deny your body certain things. Well, I'm going to stay away from that candy. I'm going to stay away from that, you know, those Cokes. And, um, you know, I'm going to stay away from drugs. Or, you know, you, you, you set those certain boundaries. You care for your body in that way. But when a spouse enters the picture, your, your body changes. And it changes drastically, Right? It changes drastically because your spouse then becomes an extension of yourself. And if you're a Christian, you realize that the old self doesn't like a roommate. The old self fights against that. And you have two choices here. Either you leverage your rights against one another or you walk hand in hand with grace constantly leading your marriage. What does it look like when your marriage is leveraging rights instead of grace being at the center of that? You work out some sort of a loose form of legal system in your marriage with roles and rules. Well, you did this last time, so now it's my turn. You got to do this. This was your, this was your time to do your thing, so now it's my time to do my thing. You know, I spent so many hours with the kids, so now let me do, do this. Take that, that lever, work it in. Try some pressure here. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not my responsibility. That's your responsibility. You see, leveraging rights against one another. What, is it, what about grace? When grace leads. Asking the question, is this decision what is most nurturing for my spouse? Is it what's most nurturing for my kids? Is it what's most nurturing for my, for my body? Yes, yes, okay, 
I've spent 10 hours with the kids while you were off doing this or that, but dinner needs to be made, and I know that you hate cooking. So please help watch the kids so I can make a meal for us. You know, gosh, we've, we've had, we both had a brutal day. You got beat up at work, you know, just I know that didn't go well for you. I had a tough day at work too. You know, we're tired, we're exhausted, but there's, there's still things that need to be done around the house. I, I, will, I will do this. No. I'll, I know this needs to be done. This is important. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to go sit in front of the TV. I'm going to do this. I'm going to hoist the banner that says, here's what's good for our family with Christ at the center. And we're going to go this way. I'm going to treat others. I'm going to treat my spouse as I would want myself to be treated and not use my own desire, my own rights as leveraged against them. Yes, roles and rules will exist in our families, but they're handled with the soft gloves of grace. My favorite quotes on marriage comes from Tommy Nelson, and he said this. He said, good marriages fight well. Good marriages fight well. And they have grace at the center of them. So in closing, cl- clothing, in closing, how do we how do we apply? How do we how do we get to some practical application? What does this mean for us when grace is at the center? Well, let me ask you a question, some questions. In your love for others, are you at the center of that expression, or is God's grace for you at the center? Do you leverage your own rights in the in the cracks of another's character, and and in doing so, tear them apart? Or is God's grace towards you sufficient to cover the multitude of sins or character quirks, and that's important to distinguish between those two, is it sufficient to cover the the nakedness, let's say, of another person in those relationships? Let me ask you, do you determine your your relationships, your friendships based off common interest? Do you look at somebody and go, well, I, I can't really hang out with them because I don't, I don't have anything in common? Let me tell you, that's a confession that you seek the relationship mainly for what you can get out of it. Mainly the enjoyment of something that you already have an affection for. Golden rule love looks away from self-interest and is solely interested in the, in the other person for who they are. For who they are is an image bearer of God, created in the image of God. As we, as we roll out our new missional communities here in the next couple of weeks, that, that's going to be a test. Because you might sit across the room from somebody and go, I don't have anything in common with this person. And yet in the Bible, I see that God pulls together people that don't have anything in common with each other. You look at the lives of the, of the disciples, those people never should have sat in a room together without punching each other in the face. I mean, really. And yet, and yet Christ unifies them. He unifies them with grace. He unifies them with grace. Look at the people that are collected in the, in the churches in the New Testament. Look at the, the history, you know, just the little brief snippets of history you get from, uh, from people in Acts who make up the church at Philippi or, or, or uh, of, of Ephesians. And you're like, these people are so just different from each other. And yet they come together because of the gospel. The gospel hadn't changed. When we meet together, 
our relationships are centered around that same gospel. Not, well, do you like Chinese food? I like Chinese food. Oh, hey, you go to the gym. I mean, secular relationships right now in our culture, that's what they center around. You have your gym friends. You have your work friends. You know, you, you may even have your church friends. But the gospel, when the gospel's at the center of your life and your relationships and your love for other people, it, 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 it draws no boundary there. It draws no boundary there. Is Jesus' love for you glorious enough for you to lay aside your self-interest and serve others who don't look like you? That's a fundamental question for us as Christians. Let me ask you this. In your relationships at work, do you, do you muscle through those difficult relationships merely for the practical reason of getting the job done? It's like, okay, you and I butt heads. I don't like you in Jesus. You don't like me, but we've got to get this thing done. So, you know, you put the wheel on that side, and I'll put the wheel on this side, and we'll, you know, we won't talk to each other, you know. Is that the way you approach your relationships with people at work? That type of affection has you at the center. When God's grace is at the center, your posture towards that person changes. Does it make it easier? No. No, certainly not. If anything, it makes it harder. But you'll care for them more holistically than just, I'm going to keep you at arm's distance simply so we can get the job done. Simply so that I don't get fired and you don't get fired and we take home a paycheck at the end of the week. When you have gospel-centered love towards coworkers, your posture towards them changes. And they will recognize that because your posture towards them and your behavior towards them, while you'll get the work done, they're going to notice that your, your attitude towards them is very different than, your, than, their attitude, than their attitude towards you. Does it mean that that's going to be a messy relationship? Oh, yeah, you bet it will be. Is there potential for the, for the Lord to do great things and exalt himself in that? Oh, absolutely. What did we just read about Paul in, in Thessalonians? He suffered much in the midst of opposition, but the gospel came in power in the lives of people. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, Only a person who sees that he's a beggar before the Lord and has nothing to offer, but has discovered that he's an heir of the grace of God will be sufficiently freed from self-centeredness of character to put others first and to do to them what he would appreciate receiving from them. This should affect our worship. We, we, should, be, we should be overjoyed to come and worship this morning. I was convicted of that when I was sitting right there singing. And we, we sang the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I was like, man, you know, I, 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 I was pleased to come and to come and to preach and to worship this morning. But I was struggling with my kids and just all these other things that were going on. And I was convicted of that. I was like, man, how deep is the Father's love for, for me that I get to come and praise Him and exalt Him, to be reminded of His love for me? That should affect our worship. One final point, and then we'll close in prayer. Imagine you, if you had a friend, if 
you had a friend that when you got together, that person wasn't thinking about what they were going to say next. They weren't thinking about a story that was going to top your story. Or they, they were listening to what you were saying. They were interacting with you. They listened to your heart. They listened to what was going on in here. And they helped you work through it. They shared common interest. When, when you had a great thing happen to you, they, they, you know, I mean, they, they, they lifted you up in that. When you, when you had a very bad thing, you were going through suffering, they didn't belittle that. They walked right alongside you. They supported you. When you had a need, they were right there. They genuinely cared for you holistically. Who would, who would not want a friend like that? I'd be the first to go, hey, sign me up. And where is that person? Now, here's the question. What are you doing to be that kind of friend? What are you doing to be that kind of, of spouse? For Jesus says, treat others in the same way you want them to treat you. And this is the law and the prophets. And, and, and this is that right there. That's a lot to sum up. The grace of God for us in Christ is at the foundation of our relationships towards others. That's the whole point. And that should free us to love others in the same way God has loved us. Let's pray.